Good morning, everybody. Can you hear me okay? Good. It's a, a real pleasure to be here. We've been on Long Island now for the last two years. I can't remember how many churches we've been at, but it's, um, it's a real pleasure to be out here. We're actually from Connecticut, just a, a ferry ride over the water. We get the, the Bridgeport Ferry, and we're only about 15 minutes from there. But um, I would like to uh, start, if you can open up your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we'll start right there at verse 9. People there? Okay, let's start. Uh, I'll be reading from the King James, but follow along with whatever version you're reading. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous, key word there, unrighteous, shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. That word deception is a key word as well. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate nor abusers of themselves with mankind. Some of your versions may say homosexual. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And verse 11, And such were some of you, but ye are washed, ye are sanctified, set apart for God's holy use, but ye are justified, made right before the Lord, in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Father, I pray, Lord, that you'd bless this message, and more importantly, Lord, that you just open up hearts, Father, to truth and your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, many years ago, I would never be here on a Sunday morning. This would be a joke for me to be in a church on a Sunday morning. You see, I grew up a much different life back then than I have today. But let me take you back. I sound like Sophia, if you remember the Golden Girls. Picture it, Sicily, 1929. Picture the 1950s. My mother and father, uh, my father was a hoodlum, if you've ever seen the movie Grease. My father was um, very much like Danny Zuko, with the black leather jacket, the cigarette, the, the greased brill, cream hair, the big black 50s glasses. And my mother was very much like Rizzo, the pink lady. She was rough, tough, foul-mouthed. Uh, when my mother ran out of uh, dirty words, she made new ones up. That was the kind of mother that I had. But both of my parents met as a teenager. My father worked at a burger joint in Bridgeport, a Valley Farms. He flipped burgers. And my mother and her girlfriends one night came for a bite to eat before they were going out. And she met my father. And I guess you can say they fell in love at first bite. Um, so that was the beginning, and my mother found that my father was uh, a real troublemaker. You see, my father had a, a real proclivity toward women and toward the bottle, and my father loved both equally, and my mother did everything she could to try to tame him, and it never seemed to happen. My father would hotwire cars to go to a bar a half a mile away, leave the car there, drink, and then steal a car and come back home so he wouldn't get caught. But my mother, for some reason, decided that this was the man for her, and they married back in 1962. And nine months later came along their firstborn child, moi. And uh, I was named Stephen John. And um, for the very first, uh, I guess for the first couple of years, I look back through my baby photos, and I see some really 
heart-touching pictures of my mother and father holding me and my father looking at me with love in his eyes, me holding my little bear toy, and my mother pushing me in my stroller. But as I grew older, that was not the father that I knew. You see, there were two other kids who came right after in our family, my sister Debbie, who was a year younger than me, and my brother Bo, who was a surprise nine years later. But the father that I remember was a father who was distant. My father was an amazing provider. He was an amazing provider. My father was brilliant. My dad was an inventor. And I guarantee every single one of you have one of my father's inventions in your home. People know here what the tape measure is? Tape measure? My father invented the lock on the tape measure back in the 1970s. Brilliant. Instead of pulling that thing out and it's smacking back at you, what a great idea. Well, my father hit it really big. That was his, his big invention. And because of that, my father moved us out of our, our little place and built us a beautiful home on two acres of land. We had a, a roller skating rink literally in our basement, probably about half the size of this church. Disco lights, jukebox. We had the best childhood growing up with whatever we wanted, physically, monetarily, we had. But you see, the only thing I really wanted from my father was his love, his attention, his affection, his approval. My father never played ball with me. He never taught me how the game of football, basketball, baseball worked. And he was more interested in, in his bottle. When he was done working at 4.30 in the afternoon, he'd come up from his workshop, he'd sit down, and he'd literally drink until he passed out. And my mother clearly saw there was a problem. And my mother, like a woman running into a burning building to save her child, became my mother and father for me. Now, praise God that my mother did all that she could to be there, but a mother can't really be a father to a child. And uh, please understand, if you are a single parent here, don't take this in the wrong way. I'm talking about my, my growing up specifically. I had a dad, and he was not a dad to me. So my mother did the best that she could. Now, I had no idea how the game of football worked until about three or four years ago. Uh, same thing with basketball. But let me tell you, what my mother taught me, I could sew a mean pair of curtains, double-lined, uh, you know, for the window. Um, I, I could do anything. You see, women for me and girls were a much safer place. I didn't know how to relate to other men. When I was going to school, I look at some of my old pictures, and if I didn't know that was me and I was not a Christian, I'd make fun of my own self. I was skinny. I had crooked, big, thick 50s glasses. I had the dippity-doo. Maybe some of the older brothers and sisters here remember that, the pink dippity-doo in my hair. I had high-water pants where, you know, they were pulled up high and, you know, the white patent leather shoes, kind of like I saw in Reen today. Um, so I would, I would say I was a nerd and dork before those words were even invented. So a lot of the boys, to me, were something that was untouchable. I was not like them at all. I, was, I never felt masculine. I felt different, and most people who may struggle with uh, either same-sex attraction or identify as gay, lesbian, transgender, uh, may tell you they always knew something was different about them early on. I had no idea what the word gay was. We didn't know about sex back then, but I knew something was different. 
So I tried going through school, and again, I was very involved in gymnastics and doing girl things, and we ended up moving when my dad sold the invention and moved to a new town, and I thought, you know, maybe things are going to be different now. Maybe I'm not going to be called queer, faggot, or sissy anymore, that maybe I'll be able to finally make some, some good friends, some guy friends, like I really wanted to. Well, it, within the first few months, uh, I tried my best, and here I was back again being teased and made fun of, and hanging around with the girls and, you know, doing non-gender conforming things, if you will. And I tried dating. This was trying, probably right around the time of puberty. I, I, I was really interested in some girls, and one particular girl, Nina, a little short girl and a little stocky, but, you know, I just really, really liked her. And we would write secret love notes to each other and talk about how we were going to hold hands on the Ferris wheel in our little town, which is a podunk town, no businesses per se, but they had the carnival that came in once a year. And just it was a fun thing talking about how we were going to be boyfriend and girlfriend. And this was about fifth, sixth grade. And uh, one time my parents uh, and my sister specifically found all of my love notes hidden in my room in a, this little statue that my mom had made. And I came home on a Saturday from a friend's house, and everyone was eating lunch, and there was an uninvited guest, and that was Abraham Lincoln, this little statue head. And all of my love notes and my secrets were out on the table, and I was laughed at and made fun of by my sister, my brother, my father, not my mother, but Stevie has a girlfriend, and felt horrible if they had any idea what I was struggling with or dealing with. Now that puberty had kicked in, it was becoming sexualized, and now I was feeling really different. Why am I not really attracted toward the girls, but toward Keith and Mark and, and David? So as of that point, I thought something really must be wrong with me. It, it, it must be a, a shame to be really liking a girl. It was right around this time, my father figure in my life was my grandfather, Steve, who I was named after. I was the first grandchild in the family, and I loved my grandfather. My grandfather loved me more than anything, more than the other, other kids in the family. His name was Steve Martin, Stephen John Martin, and I was named exactly after him, Stephen John Martin Bennett. And it was in the sixth grade that my grandfather passed away, and that was the very first time I ever dealt with death in my family. And I was so, so close to him because he was my father figure. He loved me. He had no problem. He was a tough man. My grandfather was a bookie back in there. And he broke people's arms if they didn't pay their debts. He walked around with the cigar and, and the big hat. He was a tall, big man. And him and his two brothers, literally, with a baseball bat. You didn't pay your debt. Your arms were broken. But he was man enough to love me and hug me and kiss me and tell me how wonderful and proud he was of me. And then one day he's gone. And so grieving and dealing with that and not having my own father figure in my life, something even more terrible happened. And that was in the sixth grade when I was molested by another man. And that to me was tragic beyond belief. You see, I really knew nothing about sex. And I'm not going to say anything inappropriate in a church setting, but what happened um, when I woke up and I found this person on top of me, I should have clocked this guy and knocked his teeth out. But I was frozen. I was afraid. I didn't know what to do. And I was terrified. And that was something I never, ever shared with my mother or my father. That day, uh, probably around 11, 12 years old, whenever it was 13, I became somebody different. You see, now that world of sex was opened up to me, but what happened was so terrifying, and I, I, I kind of 
shrunk back into my own little world. I was very much an artist, and I would just seclude myself in my room on the weekends and do art and listen to music. And my parents had no idea what happened, you know, happened to me. And uh, from that point, my parents ended up sending me to a, an all-boy Catholic school. I grew up Catholic. Wrong place to send someone who was struggling with homosexuality. Now the feelings started getting more deeper. And back then, a number of priests were, in fact, molesting some of the male students there. I was never molested in high school, but a number of priests did, and they actually went to prison for what they did. So after getting out of there, I really decided um, in my senior, there, senior year that uh, God had really given me a gift. I didn't know who God was, but I believed I was really given a gift of art, and I wanted to become an artist. I wanted to go to school to become a famous artist, maybe one day have my own gallery out in Hollywood. Do, I did lifelike portraits, um, be able to do portraits and sell them for a mere $25,000, $50,000 to a lot of the, the vain celebrities out there, and uh, maybe just live life with a, my boyfriend and drive a Mercedes and you know have a great life. Well, I ended up going off to Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, and within the first three months, uh, I ended up meeting a student, a male student, who was very handsome. He befriended me, an architect student. We went to a party one night. I got drunk for the very first time, something I swore I would never do because of my family's past. And afterwards, we went back up to his room, and he told me he was gay and asked if that bothered me. I said, hey, whatever you're into, that's, you know, that's all up to you. has nothing to do with me. But needless to say, within the next half hour, I willingly engaged in my first homosexual encounter. The next morning when I woke up, besides having the worst hangover ever, everything from the molestation came back. And I was crying. I was a total mental disaster as of that point. I did come out to my other friends in school and let them know that I was gay. And of course, going to art school, it seemed everybody there was gay. I was welcomed into the community with no problem. But this guy dumped me within a week or two, and I was welcomed to the wonderful world of homosexuality. Now, I was one of the second, top arts, the second top art student in my class, but I called my parents up and I lied to them and I told them I was doing horribly in school and I'm dropping out. My parents were devastated, and especially my father. My father, again, uh, as soon as I came home, just the, the, he started railing on me with the comments, this is the reason why I didn't pay for your college, your mother did, because you're a loser. What a dropout. I was now the black sheep of the family. Now what are you going to do for the rest of your life? I told you you should have been an electrician or a plumber. Nothing wrong with electricians or plumbers, but that was not my calling. So back home for just a few weeks, I became friends with a number of my friends from my past. And what do you know? Every single one of them was gay. And a, a couple of them introduced me to the gay bars, which now became my life for the next 11 years. You see, I went into the bar where maybe girls didn't like me before, but now going into this bar, everyone was looking at me. And back then, uh, the, drinking, uh, the drinking came, the drug use, cocaine started casually and to the point I was buying it and then I was selling it. I was a dealer back in Connecticut for cocaine. I also developed an eating disorder because you see, the gay lifestyle is such a sensual uh, lifestyle. It's all about me. 
when I was going into that bar, it was for one reason, to come home with someone. And so you had to look perfect. You had to be thin. You had to be buff and, and everything, perfect hair and clothing. So what did I do is I'd go to McDonald's and get two or three number four value meals, and it would be in the toilet 10 minutes later for me vomiting. And it became a vicious lifestyle now of eating and throwing up and then at night drinking and dancing and drugging and coming home with somebody new each night, trying to find Mr. Right. But you see, I realized much later on that there is no Mr. Right. It's not because of any other reason with the exception that it's not, that is not the way that God designed things. God designed clearly for be, between uh, relationships between a man and a woman. So after about, oh my gosh, well over a hundred, and nothing I'm proud of by any means, a hundred one-night stands and, and short-lived relationships, um, I just started getting worse and worse with my drinking and drug use until finally one night I ended up nearly dying from a cocaine and alcohol, alcohol overdose, and I admitted myself into uh, an inpatient drug rehab, pro rehab program uh, back in Bridgeport in 1988. And I was in there for 90 days, and it seemed everything was working. They told us about our higher power we had to find, which today, of course, my higher power is Jesus Christ. Um, and he's my savior. But back then, I saw that God delivered me from the drugs, from the alcohol, from the bulimia. But the homosexuality was a different story. See, my counselor there told me, Steve, there's nothing wrong with being gay. You were born that way. And if you were born that way, you just need to accept who you are. You're sitting in the fence right now. Just get off on one side or the other. I don't care which way you go. Just be, be who you are and be true to that. But you see, something deep inside of me always knew that was not really who I was. I really didn't want to be that way. But I had no choice. I had no control. I wasn't attracted toward women. I was attracted toward men, that which I was not. The dark hair, I was blonde when I grew up, but the dark hair, the, the muscular, uh, the athletic, and that was never me. I was always the skinny, the scrawny, and, and everything. So you see, when I was with a man who fulfilled that which I was not, I felt complete. I felt perfect. And that's the way a lot of these relationships, gay and lesbian relationships are today. These individuals are looking for someone who is the opposite of what they're looking to. And when you're with that person, momentarily you feel complete. But something happens and it, it comes apart and now you're back looking for somebody again. It was a vicious circle. After I got out of the drug rehab, I, I tried dating uh, dating some women some more at my old jobs and everything. And finally, I just, I, I ended up going back to, going to church, to the Catholic church, got involved in a little local church, became a youth leader, and was dating uh, another girl, Marcy, in there. And everything seemed to be going perfect, except Marcy decided that she was going to go back and visit her parents in Columbia for the summer. And here I am left abandoned, and I just didn't know what to do, so I ended up doing something stupid, and I went back to the gay bar. I didn't drink or do drugs, but that very night, I met a man standing at the bar who I fell in love with. And from that very first night, we were together for the next three years, every single night. I moved in with him. I left the church. I had come out to my parents when I left college, 
and my mother was crying, and I told her I'm gay. No, you're not, honey. No, you're not. I said, yes, I am. You, blah, blah, blah. And she starts swearing at me, and don't ever tell your father. And of course, my father knew. And my father was just so vicious, and he said, don't you ever bring you or your faggot friends here to this house. So I had moved out, and life is wonderful now. I'm living it with a, a man who is everything that I was not. He really completed me, and I just felt wonderful. I had come out to all my friends, to family members. Everyone knew that Steve was gay, and him and his partner you know, were just happy as anything. And most, for the most part, a lot of people accepted us. And then after about three years, I was doing my portrait work. I was really getting known, uh, meeting a lot of celebrities. Um, a lot of people were really seeing my artwork, and I was really going toward ultimately what my goal was going to be, to maybe have my gallery one day out in the Hollywood area. And then I remember one time my partner saying to me, you know, I wish we could just have one anonymous fling a year you know, to keep our relationship exciting and to keep it alive. And when he said that to me, if you're married here, can you imagine your spouse saying that to you? That felt like a dagger in my heart. I, I, I just said, you know what? It's all the same. It's all the same. There is, you know, I, I, I'm never going to find anybody. There is no Mr. Right. It's all about sex and about what, what everyone just wants. And I really was looking for someone who would love me and be with me forever. And it was right at that moment, God has a way of uh, showing up on time, doesn't he? Never late, never early, right on time. A knock comes at my door, and there is my friend Kathy, a girl I had known for many years. We worked together as artists. And she's standing here with a, a guy who I hadn't met. It was her boyfriend she introduced me to him as. And she's holding a Bible in her hand. And I looked at her, and I started laughing. And she said, hey, Steve, uh, we hadn't seen each other in over a year. And she said, I'd like to know if I could come in and talk to you about Jesus and about your homosexuality. And I'm looking at her thinking, like, what drugs are you on? What happened to you? We used to make fun of the Christians. Remember, we called them the believers. We'd laugh at them and just... You know, we would call on the phone and we'd send the Jehovah Witnesses to people's houses. We had no idea what we were doing, but we just made fun of Christians. Not that I believe that they're Christians, but Jehovah Witnesses. But um, so Kathy showed up and I said, sure, come on in. I was just I, I wanted to see what do these two have to do with each other for the next 45 minutes. Kathy who was very, very nervous then sat down and she opened up the Bible and listen, the worst place to start if you're trying to reach a homosexual for Christ is to open up to Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. And here she goes with the King James. A man shall not lie with a man as with a woman. It's an abomination, abomination. And she starts going on verse by verse by verse. And I'm sitting here like this and I am turning red in the face. And I am ready to whack her over the head with that book any second. Until she came to this this, these few verses we just read, 1 Corinthians 6, 6, 9 through 11. And when she read that to me, I had never heard that before. I mean, I really didn't read the Bible per se, but I went to Catholic school, I studied and everything, but she said, when she came to the part about, and such were some of you, it was like my wall dropped down, and I said, wait a second, are you telling me gay people can change? I was born this way. She said, Stephen, no one is born gay. And she said, yes, people can change, and they've been changing from the very beginning, and it's all because of Christ.
So she thought she had a big fish that day. Here she gets out her big Christian fishing pole. Would you like to pray and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Be born again and go to heaven and live happily ever after. And immediately, whoosh, that wall went right back up. And I said, I was born a Christian. I was baptized when I was a baby. I love Jesus. I know where I'm going. I'm perfectly happy and content. Obviously, I had no idea what I was saying. So she left the Bible with me, the King James, which I prefer to read today. And she also left with me a book, if many of you ever remember, Hal Lindsey, The Late Great Planet Earth. And she said, I'm leaving this book with you because God is a God of prophecy. What he says he's going to do in the Bible, he brings to pass. And if God says there's literally a heaven and a hell, there's no such thing as purgatory, Steve. If there's a heaven and hell and it's your decision where you're going to go, I want you to make that decision now. When you die, it's too late. So I said, okay. And she said, every day I want you to pray and say, Lord, if you're real, make yourself real to me. So for the next year and a half, while my partner was at the end of the bed doing the sit-ups, remember, he's the athletic one, doing the sit-ups at night, I'm here trying to read this King James, thee thou this, ye yay, ya ya ya, uh, reading words like about divers' diseases. What is that something that someone gets when they go into the water? I had no idea. But little by little, I can understand. Love your neighbor as yourself. And, you know, little principles of God. You see, the word of God, what it says in Ephesians, uh, so then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God is true. Little by little, that word of God, you see, Kathy, she, she had a wicked, devious plan, those Christians. She knew that by doing that, giving me that book, and if I started reading that little by little, that word of God started sinking inside of me and began to change me inside out. Until I was praying and I saw things happen in my life that, for lack of time, I won't go into it, that I knew without question there was a God. Until one day, finally, I ended up on my knees praying. And I had gone away, I had left my partner and gone away to P-Town uh, in Massachusetts and lived there for a summer to see if I could be a Christian and a, a homosexual. And again, for sake of time, I won't go into that, but I clearly found that was impossible. I came back to my partner, and here I am now, a year and a half later, praying and crying on the floor. And actually went into the bathroom, and I'm crying. My partner was in the bed, and I'm crying and calling out for forgiveness to a God I didn't even know. You see, something had transpired, and I knew I was a wicked, wicked, evil sinner. What was I doing in bed with another man? What have I done with my life? Eleven years, hundred over a hundred men. A miracle that I was never infected. I buried numerous partners and boyfriends in the ground to HIV AIDS. Yet God spared me. So the next thing I do is, uh, after he had left for work, I ended up calling my friend Kathy, who initially came to me with the Bible. I called her on the phone, crying, angry, mad, confused. And I said, I can't take this anymore. Stop talking to me about Jesus. I want nothing to do with him. I'm going back to Provincetown. I'm moving there for good. And I'm going to be the gay man that I was born to be. And what does she do? She comes out with one of those Bible verses again, those Christians and those Bible verses all the time. So she opens up the Bible. And she, I'm on the phone talking to her. And she opens up the books, book of Romans. And she said, Steve, if you go back to P-Town and and go back there and live your life as a gay man, three things may happen to you. 
Number one, God may give you over to your sin. Number two, God may uh, allow you to believe the lie. Remember, we just read about deception and unrighteousness. And three, God may make you a reprobate in his sight. And then when you're a reprobate, that means eternally damned. You will never, ever have a chance to be saved once again. And now I'm even more confused. And it just, I said, what, what do I need to do to be saved? Sounded like, uh, you know, sounded like something from the Bible. And so there Kathy said to me, I want you to pray right now the best way that you know how. Ask Jesus into your heart. Ask him to forgive you for your sin, for your homosexuality, to come into your heart, make your life new again, and let him lead you and guide you. He will do it. And I can't even believe, but the best way that I knew how, in tears, I prayed with her on the phone that day, and all I could say is, nothing kooky or spooky, I physically felt, physically felt, the presence of the Holy Spirit and a burden, feel like a burden was lifted off my shoulders. And the next words out of my mouth, as Kathy will attest, as I said, I'm leaving him. Within the next couple of days, I was out of our bed, and within the next two weeks, I was on my way and walk with Christ. Here I am, excited. I'm born again. I, I, my life is new. I remember telling this girl who knew me when I was gay, I used to work in a mall, and I come the next day and I told her, Something amazing happened to me last night. I prayed and I received Jesus and I'm not gay anymore. And she like, and she started like, what? But you see, the best way I understood it was true. Now, I have to say, was I, 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 was, I repented and I turned. I was still struggling. For the next several months, I was still struggling and Satan tried to come in and, and bring a guy back into my life. But God kept me safe. And I remember three months later in my own little apartment by myself reading the Bible, I came across Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer. And I was crying out to God, why am I still struggling? I did everything that I was told. I left my partner, the man that I loved. I gave up everything. I died to self. And here I am in this little apartment in Meriden. I don't even know where I'm living. And I'm still struggling. Why? And I end up reading in Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer, and something popped right out at me about where it says, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who trespassed or sinned against us. And I said, oh my gosh, that's it. You see, there were two people in my life who I hated, hated more than anything, and one whose love I craved. That was my father and the person who molested me. If I ever saw that person who molested me back then, I would have killed him would have literally killed him. But I knew that I had to forgive that person in my heart, and I ended up praying and crying. I wrote a letter to him, covered in tears, everything. And when I was done, I lifted that letter up to the Lord. I ripped it all up, and in my heart, I forgave that man, and I said, I'm never going back there again, and I haven't. Now, the next one was going to be the hardest one, and that was my father. I went to my father's house uh, back then. I think it was 1992. I was saved in 92. And my father was in the kitchen by himself. It was Saturday, 11 o'clock. He wasn't drinking. It was in the morning. And I said, Daddy, can I talk to you for a minute? He said, sure. And I said, how come you always told me I was no good? You always told me I was stupid and I'd never be anything. And you put me down in front of everybody. And I overachieved just to get your approval and your acceptance and, and all of this. But you always told me I was bad and I was stupid. Why? 
Why did you treat me that way when you clearly love Debbie and my brother, Bo? Oh my gosh, he was named after my father. His real name is Robert. My father loved him more than anything. He loved him so much he named the pool table Bo and his boat Master Bo. Where's the Master Steve? Anyway, my father said, I've loved you more than anything. You're my firstborn child, and I've never told you this. And I'm like, oh my gosh, here it comes. What am I going to find out? Am I adopted? Not that there's anything wrong with that. What am I going to find out? And he said to me, Steve, when you were born, I loved you more than anything. But when I arrived at the hospital and I saw you in, in the, the baby bassinet, which shows he wasn't there when I was born, he said, I read the name on the bassinet and it said Stephen John Bennett. And he said, my heart was torn out. I was brokenhearted. He said, your mother didn't even ask me. You were my firstborn son, and I wanted you named after me so bad. And your mother didn't. You were named after your grandfather. Back then, I had no money. Your grandfather lavished you with gifts. He was always with you and your mother. He did everything for you. I felt it was like a conspiracy against me. You see the alcohol. And he said, when your sister and your brother came along, he said, at that point, I said, you know what? This is their child and these two kids are mine. And he said, Stevie, I am so sorry. That's the way I've treated you for the last 28 years. And I'm sorry. I was crying, but I, I knew that my father, after getting saved myself, I knew that my father was a human being as well. And I said, Daddy, I love you more than anything. I'll love you until you die. You're my father. I said, don't ever, ever put me down again. And that day, my father gave me a big hug, he gave me a kiss on the cheek, and he whispered in my ear, I love you. That was the first time I can ever remember my father saying those words to me. And it was at that moment my homosexuality broke. You see, I was looking all of those years, all of those relationships, the one-night stands, drunk, drugged. I was looking for the love of my father, not sexually, but the love of my father in the arms of other men. And I finally had it. And right after that, right after that point, it was, I was introduced to another woman who was praying for me, who knew I was gay, and she was Kathy's best friend. And I found out she only lived a, a few minutes from where my parents lived. And we became friends, and we started hanging around with each other. And something started happening. I really started liking this woman, really started liking her. All she did was talk about Jesus, Jesus. She'd invite me over to her house. She'd cook me dinner. I, I, I felt like she could be my girlfriend. It was just so amazing. And I remember one night after only a few months, we're sitting on her porch at 1 o'clock in the morning eating sugar-free blueberry pie because she's hypoglycemic, can't eat sugar. And I asked her if I could give her a kiss on the cheek, and she said yes. And I will never, ever forget that salty, dewy kiss. And it was right after that, a few months later, uh, the Lord put it on my heart, not even a year saved. I got saved in January of 92, and in November, the Lord spoke to me, not audibly, but I believed that this woman was going to be my wife. I went out, and I saved up my money. I bought a ring, and on Christmas Eve, after asking her mother for permission to marry her, I got down on my knees um, in the mother's bedroom, and I said, knowing my entire background and story, would you glorify God together with our lives? And would you become my wife and marry me? And here's what a godly Christian woman says. She, she really wanted to say yes, but she was shocked that I asked her because we only knew each other for such a short time. 
She said, I can't say yes, I can't say no, I need to pray about it. Pray about it really now at this moment? So I said, keep the ring. A month later, she said, take me out to dinner, ask me the question again. I did, and she said, yes, I will be your wife. I want to introduce you, in my opinion, to the most beautiful Christian woman in the world. We're going to be celebrating our 24th year of marriage this year, Mrs. Irene Bennett. Come on up. Irene is such a sweetheart, and she's my better half. She's my better half, and I will tell you, uh, the Lord has done a miracle in my life, and he gave me more abundantly than I could ever, ever ask or think. By God's grace, I say before you, I no longer struggle whatsoever with homosexuality. I haven't gotten drunk or drugs or anything in over 30 years. God made me a 2 Corinthians 5.17, a new creature in Christ. He's blessed us with two beautiful children, our daughter Chloe Catherine, whose middle name is after Kathy, who I got saved through, who led me to Christ. Uh, Chloe is 18 today, and our son Blake is 16. Stands six foot three, 245 pounds, built like a horse, and um, both, of our, both of our children know my testimony uh, and have such a heart and compassion for the LGBT community today. Really briefly, we have been in ministry for the last 18 years. The Lord called us as missionaries and evangelists to reach uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people in love with the truth for Jesus Christ. Uh, and at the same time, my wife, Irene, leads our parents group ministry. And she was called into that, in that specific ministry back in 2007, 10 years ago. She has a brand new book coming out. Uh, we were hoping it would be ready for this, uh, for this church event. It should be out in about three weeks or so. It's called Until Your Prodigal Comes Home, Encouragement Along the Way. It is an unbelievable book being published by Thomas Nelson Zondervan, the people who publish the Bibles. And um, I'm just so um, amazed at what the Lord has done. I want to give Irene a couple of minutes here, and I know we're running over time, but a couple of minutes here just to share a little bit uh, about the ministry and what the Lord has called her to do in this. Good morning. I have a, I have a part uh, in Stephen's testimony, and uh, my testimony as to how God brought us together begins when I became a Christian. I was 23 years old, and soon after that, the Lord, my, well, my mentor and person who led me to Christ, told me, if you want a husband, you need to start praying for one. And so I said, okay, this is new. And I, every night, would kneel down beside my bed and ask God to give me a husband. And many nights, I remember the Holy Spirit very, very powerfully leading me to pray for my future husband's health, for his protection, and for God not to let him die, as well as for his salvation. And I felt this burden very strongly. And I were, was brought to tears many times, thinking, oh my gosh, he's in real trouble. And I, I didn't know why I prayed that way. I thought perhaps he's in the military or in the police or some dangerous job and, you know, was needed God's protection. And so I just was obedient and prayed that way for a long, long time. Uh, in the meantime, uh, Kathy had uh, 
come to work where I worked, she became a Christian, and then she told uh, me that she has a very dear friend, Stephen, who's homosexual, and, you know, would I pray for him? And I said, sure, we'll, we'll pray for him. And long story short, <clears throat> Stephen did come to Christ uh, probably a year and a half later. I was still praying for a husband, but I never never crossed my mind that he would be my husband. <laughs> but anyway, we met finally and got to be very good friends, and he asked me out on a date. Uh, and we were in conversation, and I said to him, you know, I, I don't want to fool around here. I am looking to get married. I really want a husband. And he said, well, good, because I really want a wife. And then he shared with me how so many of his partners were dead from AIDS. And then it hit me all at once, and I thought, oh, my gosh. I, I told him about my prayers for the last probably two years, and I said, you know, if you're to be my husband, then now all my prayers make sense. My husband wasn't a fireman or a policeman or in the military. He was a homosexual man who was in trouble and in danger of getting AIDS and losing his life. And so we were just amazed and, and decided to just completely, you know, leave it in God's hands and, and go on. And, um, I really did like and love Stephen, and when he asked me to marry him, I just want to say, I really wanted to say yes, but, and I thought he was the one, especially, you know, with being saved from having AIDS and everything, but I couldn't just not, you know, ask God, and so, so that's why I spent a month just praying, and I had complete peace that he was the one that God sent uh, for me. And I said, yes, and here we are <laughs> 24 years later, praise God. And so now to the ministry, uh, God called us into ministry in 2000. And since, since then, uh, the, well, the first six or seven years, we noticed that there was a great need for parents especially and loved ones who had LGBT uh, loved ones, children and loved ones, um, to gain support and encouragement and to uh, pray with one another. And that need was not being met. And we had gone to churches all over the United States and Canada. And it was always the same story. We would meet people in churches who, you know, never, never even met another parent in that situation. And so the Lord brought us to open uh, an online support group called the Parents Group. 90% of our people are parents, but we also have spouses on there who are praying for their husband or their wife. Uh, some uncles and aunts have come on, pastors have, have come on. But we all are online. We pray every Tuesday night via a conference call from all around the country. We have blogs, we have websites, articles, information, we have scriptures and uh, encouraging songs and all, all kinds of information to help uh, families minister to and love their LGBT loved ones. And so that's available to all of you. And if you know friends who need that, 
could use that ministry. It's free, it's secure, and you can speak to us after uh, this service if you need more help. Thank you. So I just want to um, thank God for Irene, and uh, because for the sake of time, um, we're going to cut the last song, if that's all right, and um, you can please visit our table. We have a number of resources. We have flyers, a website with tons of information if you have a loved one or want to know how to reach the LGBT community. Please join us after service. I think we're having pizza. Yummy pizza. Everyone's welcome to come down. We'll have a Q&A time. We also have prayer cards. We would greatly appreciate. We're a 501c3 nonprofit organization. And without hawking here for money, our biggest need right now is financial. Um, we're, there are very, very few ministries out there doing what we're doing. So your support would be greatly, greatly appreciated. On your way out, we have tracks. I was gay. I put my mug on there so when you hand these out, people won't think you're gay. Amen? Please take these. We have had so many people come to Christ because of these tracks. Uh, our phone number's on the back, so they call us and scream at us on the other end. And I always say, Irene, it's for you. <laughs> but a uh, number of people have come to Christ because, uh, because of that. And again, a lot of resources. Uh, one thing I do want to say here is now being a father myself, I want to just really share uh, how much I love my dad and really appreciated him. Both of my parents are gone right now. I know that I was a big part of that problem. You know, I had a lot of disrespect and everything, but my father did the best that he could. He had a father, and he had five brothers, and his father's name was Ed, and the firstborn child's name was Eddie, and no one could ever be better than Eddie. My father, when he sold that invention, my grandfather said, you're nothing but a piece of blank. No one will be better than your brother, Eddie. When my father bought and built that beautiful new home, he wanted his father to come see it. No one will, he would never, he never came and saw my father's home uh, because he said, no one will ever be better than Eddie. So I know where this all came from, and I know how brokenhearted my father was. But when, when my father uh, did ask for forgiveness and I forgave my father, uh, he lived for another 16 years, and we had the best relationship that we possibly can. So I just want to encourage you, if you're carrying any bitterness or guilt about uh, maybe your father or mother or someone in the past, you know what? It is not worth it. Let it go. Um, really pray for that individual. And if they're gone, thank God for them. Uh, think of the good things. My father was an amazing provider. How many other kids could say you had a roller skating rink in your basement? My father gave us everything that we ever wanted financially um, or material-wise. And my father did the best that he could. Unfortunately, my father did not pray before he passed away. I know I will see my mother in heaven. Hers was an amazing story. But listen, God bless you. Thank you so much for listening here. And um, if there's anything we can do, we have an 800 phone number. Call us on our dime, and we'd love to help you out in any way. We want this to be a starting point. We're not just in here and rushing out. We want this to be a starting point. We'd like to be part of, part of this church in a way, maybe one day as one of your missionaries to the LGBT community. But until then, we want to help you in any way that we can. Thank you so much.